This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Praxis is proud to sponsor this episode of the podcast. Praxis is about living the life you want, living on your own terms, getting off the conveyor belt. What does that mean specifically? If you're a young person, high school, college age, you've kind of been taught that there's a conveyor belt. You sit down, you shut up, you obey the rules, you get good grades, and you'll be moved along and then eventually handed a ticket to a job and a house and two and a half kids and a bunch of debt. That's bull crap. You need to create your own life. You need to decide what you want. Look at the opportunities around us that are more plentiful than has ever existed in the history of mankind. And you need to get out and start exploring and experimenting. Stop doing things you hate. If you're bored in the classroom, if it's not bringing you any joy, get out. Engage with the world. Try some things. If you get accepted into practice, Praxis is a highly competitive, highly competitive program. But if you get accepted in, we will place you with an entrepreneur at a growing dynamic business where you'll be working 30 hours a week. At the same time, you'll be going through a series of professional development challenges to meet your goals that you've set out. You start the program and say, here's what I want at the end. Here are the tangible outcomes. I want a job offer. I want to launch an online business. I want to whatever it might be. We take that and use that as our measuring stick to decide whether we're doing our job. Our advisors work with you to reach those goals. They help you. They push you. They challenge you like a fitness trainer would. But ultimately, you're the one in the driver's seat. We provide you with an amazing curriculum, resources on everything from liberal arts topics like economics and history to business, entrepreneurship, life skills, and every you know digital branding, building a website. It is intense, but it will change your life discoverpraxis.com. Check it out. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by Brett Vinat, who is the founder of the School Sucks Project and the voice of the School Sucks podcast. Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you, Isaac. It is great to be here. So today, what I want to do, I want to just go scattershot. I was originally going to do what I typically do, which is kind of go through a chronological, okay, tell us your backstory. How did you get into what you're into now and that kind of thing. But I feel like we have such similar interests and there's so many places we could go on the topic of sort of education, self-directed learning and all these things. I just want to jump all over the place and through the process We'll get your bio. It will emerge spontaneously. How's that sound? I love it. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. So first, who should listen to the School Sucks podcast? Well, at this point, I would say it's, it's three groups. When I started the show back in 2009, I was really hunting for frustrated high school students who had, you know, the ability through experience to identify with the show's title And uh, I wanted to help them make sense of this experience they were having and hopefully offer them some uh, solutions or new directions away from schooling and towards uh, real education. I would say that as the show went on and grew, we also speak to a lot of homeschooling or unschooling parents. And I would say a majority of our audience is made up of adult autodidacts, just people who knew that the, you know, school experience left a lot to be desired as far as, you know, real education was concerned. 
and uh, they're trying to make their own meaning and educate themselves as adults and and de-school uh you know a lot of the those um i guess non-life-serving lessons that we get in the 15,000 hours of, of public school, getting rid of that stuff. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. I've had people tell me before, hey, I think I'm going to start a blog or a podcast, but I can't start it until I pick a theme. And I got to get a name that ex exactly describes what the theme of this blog or this podcast is going to be. And my response is usually like, I mean, if you, if you want to do that, that's fine. I'm not going to say that's wrong. But my guess is if you just start doing it, you'll find a theme sort of comes in in ways you didn't expect. And it seems like, and you got to correct me because I've listened to, I don't know, maybe a couple dozen of your episodes and I know you have hundreds. Um, it seems like your show has kind of, has kind of morphed in some ways to, to be far more than sort of here's, here's what's problematic with school. And maybe here's some other ways to think about education. Your show is like an educational program. It's got all kinds of, okay, how to be more productive, how to be more creative. Uh, it's got sections on, you know, learning about history. Like it's a combination of sort of the theory of education itself, as well as some ways to just educate that don't involve school. Was that something that you planned or did that just kind of happen? You know, that's, that's a really good question. I initially thought that the show would be much shorter than it's it's turned out to be. I originally conceived it as kind of a treatment for a documentary film, uh, The School Sucks Idea, and no one was really interested in, you know, the, the libertarian or free market angle on the schools. And uh, from there, I just kind of sat dormant for a couple of years. And when I started getting into podcasting, like listening to podcasts, like 2006, 2007, uh, I was like, oh, you know, maybe that's an avenue through which I could pursue this this idea. I thought it would be more like an audiobook kind of thing. And, and maybe, you know, it would be 10 to 20 episodes and I could go over everything that had built up inside me from my 10 plus years experience at that point working uh, in and around uh, schooling, you know, as a, a private school teacher, as a public school uh, tutor, SAT tutor, college consultant. I ran a tutoring business in New Hampshire where I live for a few years. So there's a lot of things through those vocations that I can't just say because I won't have my job anymore <laughs> or people won't want to come to me if I tell them the truth about uh, you know, the whole college experience and how much sense college makes. I won't be a college consultant anymore. The word of mouth will not, you know, that word of mouth business spreading effect that, that we kind of rely on in that business, that wouldn't be working for me if I was completely forthright with people. So there, a lot of things had built up in me, and I really didn't like the fact that getting work in in that field was largely based on what I couldn't say. So the show became a nice outlet for that. And then after I did, you know, 10, 15 episodes, I said, I like this. The, the show actually became uh, fairly popular relatively quickly, thanks to other people getting involved in interviewing me, like Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. And then some people affiliated with the talk show Free Talk Live uh, started listening and promoting it. And we built up a pretty big audience by the end of 2009, after we'd only been doing the show for a few months. And I said, well, why would I stop this? And uh, when we start to go away from, yeah, school sucks, here's the problems with school, and into but, you know, education is wonderful and lifelong and enriching. Uh, there's really there's really no end in sight. So 
yeah, I think I wanted to originally record so I could hear myself, you know, complain all this stuff that I've been like <laughs> jotting down in notebooks or that had been swirling around in my head. I just needed an outlet to get it out. So it was very negative about, you know, the hidden lessons of school, the damaging uh, public school history curricula. And uh, after I got through all of that stuff, people said, hey, you know, you should talk about this. And I said, you know what? I should talk about that. And uh, it just continued on and started to, you know, pick up momentum from there for the next couple of years anyway. So you that know, was the beginning. Uh, it's exciting to hear that it – I was wondering, I was going to ask you about if it took a long time to build up an audience, but that it took off relatively fast. And I got to say, the name is just so great. Like when you hear it, oh, the school sucks podcast. I, I want to know what this is about. You know, it's intriguing. <laughs> it's yeah. nice and edgy. Did, did you feel so? I've talked to so many people over the years, whether they're working in some, you know, government bureaucracy or some, you know, political capacity, heaven forbid, or uh, or in a in an educational system. And they and they kind of see what's around them and they don't like it, but they feel trapped. It sounds like you were kind of in that position where you kind of you started to dislike what it was you were, you were doing for people. And I'm sure you were able to do some good in that, but, but just sort of the overall system you were working within, did you feel trapped? Did you feel like I'm just going to be stuck here forever, even though I don't really believe in this system or did you feel hopeful? And what was that like kind of making the transition out of that? Yeah, that's interesting. It, it all happened very, very gradually. And I think one concern that I had you know, it's it's to be completely honest, I didn't have, you know, a five year plan <laughs> uh, at really at, at any point in my life. That's kind of a new concept to me professionally. The Soviets uh, were famous for those. And look where. It got <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I I didn't know how I was going to make more money in education than I was uh, making at the time that that private uh, tutoring enterprise or college consulting, it, it pays very well for someone with my, you know, education and uh, skill level. So I, I didn't really want to walk away from it, but the and, and this the and this grew, was primarily helping people get better scores on tests and get in college entrance exams. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I think that that is a totally uh, reasonable. Profession. I didn't really have any hangups about doing that because the SAT tutoring business, which is a majority of the work that I did, it's very competitive. There's there's a lot of companies, even just here in New Hampshire, that are doing that and trying to make deals with public schools for you know exclusivity and tutoring their students. And uh, the edge that I tried to give our company was the SAT as an opportunity. And I was actually pretty forthright when I would talk to guidance counselors or teachers or school administrators, both public and private. And I would say, I feel this is from my experience as a student and my experience as a, as a teacher that the schooling process leaves a lot of really core, valuable intellectual skills left underdeveloped, you know, even after all this time, 12 years, uh, critical thinking skills, vocabulary skills, argumentation, persuasion, uh, logic, all of these things. And I think that the test, if somebody properly prepares for it, there's opportunities in this test to develop those skills relatively quickly and, and to make those skills that are being developed just really for the test, to make that explicit, um, there's a better chance that kids can retain them hmm. beyond just, you know, getting those two or three numbers that they need 
to put on a college application. So I would be very clear, like, you know, we're, we're talking about writing an essay, but there's, there's a, you know, strategy for persuasive writing or, or making argumentation generally. There's fallacies that you want to avoid. And I was always like improving the course as it went on. Like every time I taught it, I felt like I would add more to it. But all anyone was really using it for, this was the sense that I got, was to get into college. And they really didn't care <laughs> about anything else I was saying. I mean, there get was your some... magic ticket, you know? Yeah, I mean, there were some times where kids were like, oh, that's that's really cool. Thanks for, for sharing that. But I felt like so many of the students that I taught were already so overwhelmed with the demands that school was placing on them that mm -hmm. they weren't going to just drop everything to have this really enriching investigation into the opportunities that the SAT might provide. I think, uh, I feel like I helped a lot of students. I know that a lot of them got much better test scores uh, afterwards than they were getting before, and I felt good about that. And like I said, the business spread by word of mouth. But by 2013, the show had just become uh, such a such a responsibility that I really couldn't I had to pick one thing to succeed at, basically, hmm. uh, or at least with the skills that I had at the time. I mean, maybe I can, you know, develop in the realm of organization or time management or productivity where I could do both of those things somehow simultaneously. But at, at the time, you know, like almost three years ago, I felt like I really had to make a choice between one or the other, even though school sucks uh, was a lot less security. Uh, I chose to go down that route because I saw it as, you know, I guess at the time I would have said something like a more noble path to go down. You know, it's interesting you mentioned some of the students you worked with kind of just being too stressed or, or worried about getting into college to be able to sort of stop and take advantage of some of the the other value they could have gotten out of that time. I sure. kind of I see it as like, uh, it's like Maslow's hierarchy, right? You have food, shelter, water, and then you have get a college degree. And, it, and it's so, I find so many young people, they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know like there are things I could do to sort of make myself more valuable or discover what I really love and kind of pursue things. And I know those have long-term benefits, but I can't think about anything until I get that degree need satisfied because there's so much pressure on them and it kind of blinds them to the actual opportunities around them. Cause they, they feel like they literally won't survive if they don't just get that credential under their belt and like whatever it takes to get it. And only then can you think about it. just like if you're starving, you're not thinking about, you know, conserving the rainforest, you're thinking about living and only after you've met that basic need, can you sort of move up? And I feel like it's become, it's become such a worry, such a source of anxiety for young people to get the best grades, to get into the best schools, to just get that out of the way. Okay. Then I can think about becoming the kind of person I want to become, which is really sad, I think. Yeah, and I felt like if I was going to be honest with with kids at the end, I was really only going to add to the pressure because with what's happened in higher education, quote unquote, in the last, you know, 15 years at least uh, since I've graduated from college, is that it's much easier to go to college than yep. it used to be. Certainly like than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Um, you know, I have two, one of my parents didn't go, one of my parents did. I don't even know if my mom actually graduated from college, but it wasn't so common, you know, and, and a lot of college professors are complaining about the lack of skills that their students have uh, in, in college today. So 
my best advice for a lot of these students who are just looking at college as like the 13th grade, like, well, I don't know what I want to do yet, but I know I need to go. And I, you know, that's an expensive way to find out. <laughs> it's an expensive way to explore career options, especially, you know, some of these kids looking at schools. And this was, you know, seven, eight years ago that I was doing this and schools were like 20 to $30,000 a year in tuition then if you're going to live there. Yeah. So I would say if you want college to be worth something, and this kind of goes to adding on to the pressure, you really have to go to one of the best schools. Like you can't just go to college and get a bachelor's degree. Like I graduated from college in the year 2000. That wasn't even true for me then. Yeah. You know, never mind today. I mean, I walked out of college with that thing and I thought there would just I'd walk into a job interview, get a job. I thought I would be choosing between jobs that I had been offered. <laughs> You know, and that's not it's not like that's completely untrue. Like I did get offered entry level jobs that paid like, you know, twenty two thousand dollars a year in 2001, twenty four thousand dollars a year in like uh, marketing. My first professional job using my degree paid twenty three thousand five hundred dollars a year. <laughs> and it was uh, a marketing coordinator coordinator at a ski resort. I got a walkie talkie. I got a digital camera, which was very hip at the time and uh, a four wheeler. And in the winter, a snowmobile. So it was a pretty sweet job, but it only paid $23,500. And I thought, you know, I was just stunned by how little I knew uh, about the work world. I thought I would be getting offers at like forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 to start with, with a degree, um, considering the fact that I had just dumped Sixty thousand in, into the education, but that's it, not how it worked. It's amazing. I think I think I had to look up the statistics to verify, but the last time I checked, something like sixty percent or more than sixty percent of um, degree holders are either unemployed or working a job that doesn't require a degree right now. So <laughs> there's some degree inflation out there. Um, okay, let me let me ask you this: totally changing subjects. Sure. About libertarians, because you mentioned uh, some some of the different sort of libertarian shows that brought you on early on. And that and that's a realm. I mean, I'm uh, very familiar with I worked with some great organizations, um, you know, sort of in the broad libertarian milieu. And that's kind of my those are those are my people. That's my stomping grounds. But there's something really interesting. Why do so many libertarians sort of miss it on education? Like they might be in favor of you know, sort of school choice or uh, vouchers or better run government schools, but there's not a lot of fundamental questioning of school itself as a vehicle for learning. Why do you think that is? I don't think people see it as like an entertaining or exciting or uh, attractive issue. School. I mean, think about like what most people's <laughs> most people who graduated from high school in America. What do you think their attitude is towards high school? Like something they want to revisit and explore. Um, I, I think that's a big part of it. I think that there's other issues, especially like in current events and politics, that are much more alluring than the examination of government school. You know, I was really pleased to find that the uh, history of government school was absolutely fascinating via the work of people like uh, John Taylor Gatto yeah. uh, and Charlotte Iserby and a few others. So I found that there was a lot of interesting material to to go through. And I think that's been one of the reasons why the show has been successful with libertarians. Um, I think initially, too, 
getting the uh, Free Domain Radio audience on board back in 2009, 2010 was really helpful because a lot of their content at the time was focused on a better, freer society through the treatment of children and respect for children. Mm. And the school issue fit perfectly with that. So there was a real uh, powerful alliance that was formed with a lot of those listeners who saw the importance of, you know, parenting in raising people who basically speak the language of freedom, not people who speak this language of, you know, do this or else, the language of authority, basically. So I, as I look out at the libertarian landscape, I don't see why, and this is, you know, maybe certainly uh, subjective and probably a little self-interested, I don't see why there's any focus on anything else <laughs> besides education and parenting. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of a similar... Um intellectual as well as career journey that I, I sort of took in trying to figure out how to how to make the world a better, freer place. Okay, there's there's politics. I found out pretty quickly that doesn't work. And then sort of, you know, policy, eh, a little bit maybe, uh, educating people and sort of trying to convince them of the ideas of liberty. Okay, there's some small percentage of people who will change their beliefs based on, you know, ideas and direct argument. And and I think beliefs are the ultimate binding constraint of what politicians yeah. can get away with. But it took me a long time to realize that the role of experiences, which is where I think parenting, education, entrepreneurship, which I'm all excited about, come in. You, you can create experiences for people. And based on those experiences, they will form beliefs. And it doesn't even necessarily take, require direct argumentation. There, there's a great um, story of a, an interview of somebody, uh, he's like a captain in the American Revolution, and someone interviewed him and said, why, why were you fighting? Was it, did you read, you know, Thomas Paine? Was it, was it John Locke? Was it, you know, what, what ideas influenced you to, to fight this battle? And he said, we, we don't really read books where I was from. You I mean, had the Bible sitting around, but it wasn't really any theories or anything. I just, we had always been free. And when someone came and said, we're going to start taxing you and start doing this, that was offensive to me. And I think that's yeah. such a beautiful picture of you don't, you don't even necessarily need, even though I'm a huge fan and I nerd out on Austrian economics and all this stuff, you don't even necessarily need everyone to understand, you know, the, the deadweight losses that are created by government cartels or whatever. If someone has grown up where they are respected and largely autonomous and they're not constantly subjected to arbitrary authority and just taught to follow the rules no matter what, the first time somebody tries to tell them that they can't have a, you know, a big sized soda at 7-Eleven, they're going to be offended by that just based yep. on their experience. They're going to say, well, that's bull crap. You know, I've experienced something better. This isn't right. But if they've grown up accustomed to just always obeying authority and getting rewarded for following the rules, they're going to be much more prone to go along with that kind of stuff. And, it, and it's too late to win the intellectual battle in many cases. So I think it's just such a powerful reframing of how to make the world freer is by starting with making your own life, your own family as free as possible. And people who have tasted it will not want to give it up. Absolutely. I think when children are raised at a, from a very early age in, in an authoritarian setting, they'll be marched off to the government schools at the age of six, and that environment will make perfect sense. And after they spend 12 years in that authoritarian environment, they will go out and be citizens and based on their previous experience that world will make perfect sense so yeah i think that's exactly uh what you're saying and that is one of school's claims we prepare uh young people for citizenship they certainly do you know especially in this world where people are told 
that they're not safe from themselves, they're not safe from each other, they need to be watched, they need to be monitored, nobody can be trusted, you must listen to authority, uh, do not question authority. Yeah, school definitely, I think, delivers on that that claim that it makes good citizens. It certainly does. So uh, you are always, uh, you're an avid learner, an autodidact, you're, you're constantly uh, diving into new things. What are some ideas, books, or concepts currently that you're really interested in that you're that you're digging into right now? Oh, <laughs> that's kind of embarrassing because um, <laughs> on my show we do theme months. Uh, so I said we'll do three theme months, and then I'm going to take a month off uh, to just kind of have fun, you know, and not. I, I'm trying to put together theme months like mini courses, so when people come to SchoolSucksProject.com. They can, they can see the value. All through January, we focused on maximizing productivity, uh, largely through the work of people like David Allen, uh, who wrote the book Getting Things Done. Uh, in February, I teamed up with a rationalist philosopher named Steve Patterson, and we did a series called oh, The Principles. Steve's a great, great friend of mine. He's been on the show a few times. Oh, terrific. Yeah, we, we did a series called The Principles of Learning Anything. All throughout the month, uh, month of March, I did a series called The Creative Pursuit, where I talked to people like, let's see, uh, Dobby Barker, who's a libertarian uh, graphic designer, uh, Julia Toryanskia, who's a very well-known uh, Canadian libertarian YouTuber, uh, Jeffrey Tucker, uh, from he's currently working with Fee, but obviously Jeffrey's got a long history of um, publishing, and uh, he's authored several books. Uh, David Allen, uh, who came on to talk about his productivity method for creativity, uh, and, and a few others as well. So that was the first quarter of 2016, mm -hmm. uh, and I spent a lot of time immersed in books like, uh, oh no, the the War of Art by Stephen Oh Preston. my gosh, that's one of my absolute favorites. I, I recommend that to people all the time. Yep, but uh, a lot of productivity stuff as well, and I was really immersed in Steve's work through the month of February. So then I said, what's a fun thing that we can do for people uh, for, for April? And people have been just clamoring in my Facebook group for more uh, conspiracy shows. <laughs> and I said, what if we did an investigation into Hollywood symbolism and like the hidden history or the dark history of Hollywood. Now, there's a lot of silly stuff there, but there's a lot of interesting stuff there as well. So uh, last year in August, I had teamed up with a couple other libertarian uh, media people, Brian Sovereign, who does a show called Sovereign Tech. It's an awesome, awesome tech show, and he used to be one of the hosts of Free Talk Live. And Stephanie Murphy, his partner, uh, she she's done a bunch of uh, libertarian podcasts. She also used to host Free Talk Live. She's a voice actor now. And we did this thing called Conspirathon, where we just went all over the map uh, for hours uh, talking about and, and kind of bringing a critical thinking approach to conspiracy narratives. So because this was so popular, I said, let's do it again. Let's spend the month of April doing that. But let's really, really focus in on on Hollywood. What did Stanley Kubrick mean in The Shining when he did this? Or what is a Heist Wide Shot really about? And what other movies have hidden messages? And what's the story behind Hollywood? Why is it so weird there? What's going on there? So where I've actually been spending a lot of time like watching documentaries. And um, I'm, I'm actually reading a book right now by Robert Anton Wilson just to get me in the mood. It's oh, called man. Uh, Illuminatus. Yes, yes. Yep. He's, he's so fun. <laughs> what was the one that I read? I think it was... Uh... 
maybe the cosmic trigger. I don't know, cosmic but he, trigger, he, yeah, he's yeah. a, he's a lot of fun. You know, this is so funny. You mentioned this because my good friend, uh, TK Coleman, he's, he's also the education director for Praxis and he's a, he's a frequent guest on here, but he loves, I mean, he loves all kinds of ideas in all kinds of fields. He loves exploring conspiracy theories and he, he's been saying for a while, Oh, we should do an episode about conspiracy theories. But the problem is you can't really do one about them without people being like, you're a conspiracy theorist. And he's like, the, the reason I want to do one is I want to sort of make the claim that engaging with conspiracy theories is actually a productive pursuit because it makes you a better thinker. So no claims about the truth or falsehood of these. Uh, most of them are crazy and most of them are you know probably false. But the point is to just say, um, oh, well, you know, I know there's not a, an alien satellite on the moon uh, because I just know it because smart people say it is not as valuable as saying, okay, let's entertain this. If there were, what would that mean? How would it be proven or disproven and kind of forcing yourself to, to give better reasons for the beliefs that you have. And it's not so much about like, you know, deciding that there's an alien satellite on the moon and it, what, what would that even change? Um, if you did decide that it's more about forcing yourself to be more rigorous in your thinking, even on things that seem really obvious and they're so commonly accepted, nobody but wacky people questions them. Just getting, getting a little bit more willing to um, question and, and push yourself to have, to have actual you know, sort of arguments for things. So anyway, it's funny that you bring that up. Well, it's a great learning opportunity, uh, and I, th I think you're, that's what you're, what you're getting at, but I definitely second that. I mentioned Kubrick a few minutes ago, and you know, one of the greatest conspiracy theories of all time is that the Apollo missions were n not real and Stanley Kubrick filmed them for NASA. There is no conspiracy in the world that I want to believe more than that. You know, that's so entertaining, but I just can't believe it. The evidence just isn't there, unfortunately. You know, we did a series uh, called Logic Saves Lives, and we did an episode about conspiracy theories. This was back in 2012, and that was one of the, the episodes that we did. Did Stanley Kubrick help NASA fake the moon landing? I sure hope so. Um, but in the end, it turns out that most conspiracy theories are really just built on fallacies of omission. People really shining the spotlight in on, on certain aspects of a story that they want you to see, but leaving other areas that would be really, really important to illuminate completely in, in the darkness. And the other problem, it's not just intellectual, I think it's also really emotional, that whole uh, conspiracy investigation. People bring tons of confirmation bias <laughs> to, to that. They go there wanting to believe, and, and that desire will be And, and, and on both sides, down. too, yeah. I will say, many of the people who argue against the conspiracy theorists even though they're usually right, they often don't have arguments either. It's oh, just, they're the, some of the most frustrating people I've ever listened to. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah it, so this is funny. I, I actually, I started thinking about conspiracy theory as a vehicle for learning. I was in Ecuador recently and I was like, hey, we're right at the equator. And I started thinking about the way the earth spins and like thinking, you know, I, I know very little about physics, but like, so we would, it should be spinning faster at the equator. So I started looking some stuff up. And inevitably, a whole bunch of the results were all these flat earth conspiracy theorists about, you know, the earth is flat and here's the proof and blah, blah. So I actually watched some of these videos and read some of this stuff. Um, I spent more hours than I care to admit. And what was interesting is in the in the few hours that I sort of engaged some of these flat earth claims and mentally, I was able to you know, relatively easily re refute them and just like, OK, well, here's the, this is not a good argument, the logic here. But what I noticed was. I learned more in those few hours of attempting to refute the claim that the earth is flat or attempting to show, okay, what would it take to disprove this? 
about physics and uh, you know the way that the Earth moves and the, and all these different things than I could ever learn if someone just told me. Here's the way the Earth moves. Here's how it rotates. You know, here's the relationship to gravity. Blah 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 blah. Memorize these facts. Compare that to being told. I'm going to claim the earth is flat. It's your job to disprove me, right? Like yeah, there's, yeah. there's something so much more fun and engaging in approaching learning in that way. So maybe there's more, more, uh, gold to be gotten out of the exploration of conspiracy theories. Oh, there's a ton. You know, I was working as a facilitator for this, this boy, this was maybe back in 2011. So it was while I was doing the show and he had been pulled out of public school. He had some challenges. He just didn't really fit in there. He was like eight or nine years old, uh, nine or 10 years old at the time. He was absolutely obsessed with the show Ancient Aliens on the History Channel, <laughs> not on the Sci-Fi Channel. This was on the History Channel that, uh, you know, human civilization was basically pushed forward by some kind of alien presence. That's the basic thesis that these pseudoscientists keep coming back to on the show. And I said, OK, well, you know, this is where his enthusiasm is. So I could get a curriculum from his public school and I could pull him away from his YouTube or the pictures that he wants to draw, or the UFO books that he wants to read, and we could do math at home, or reading at home, or science or social studies at home, or I can just ride this wave of enthusiasm that he's already on, and we can see what kind of educational opportunities exist inside it. And there were so many. I mean, we you know, learned about GPS, like plotting all of the places in the, uh, on, on the globe. This was like a month long project where there had been UFO sightings or UFO abductions. And he learned about like GPS and longitude and latitude. And I, that's really, I think that for real education to happen, you have to use the enthusiasm and the motivation of the, of the learner. And that was actually, he was the one who talked me into isn't this moon landing thing interesting? Because I said, that's the silliest conspiracy theory. <laughs> but then after we like we watched something, I was like, that is at least worth investigating. And I did, like, the more I learned about it eventually, I was like, okay, I guess I was right when I knew nothing, but that was just <laughs> luck. Um, but yeah, you're right. There, there are a, a ton of educational opportunities in, in those investigations. So um, you're a huge lover of history, and that was yeah. kind of, uh, is that what you taught? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what is your, what, okay. Why, why I'll go put it this way. Why is history valuable? And what do you love about it? That's a, that's a, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I think that I want people in my audience, and this was definitely true when I was um, a teacher to have these moments where they're like, no way. You know, this is this is the same appeal that I think a lot of these people promoting conspiracies have is they want to shock people with new knowledge. And I just remember being in college and having a real like left wing uh, history professor. And he was, you know, teaching basically the Howard's in Noam Chomsky view on America in the 19th and 20th century. And I was just stunned and, and really like angered by this empty Disney version of history that I had gotten in public school. <laughs> and I really want to, you know, wake people up from that. Uh, and, and I remember like every time I can make a connection or tell a story and I, and I can just see if I can do it face to face and I can see the look on somebody's face when they're like, wow, the most boring subject in school is actually interesting. I think today, like a lot of people know this now, like 20 years ago, maybe a lot of people didn't, but with the, with the internet, 
Um, I, I think that the amount of really fascinating uh, explorations in you know American and world history that are possible, it's it's much clearer today. Like when I was a freshman, or when was I? I, I took history maybe like sophomore, junior year in college for the first time. So 20 years old, late 90s, uh, I, I was just stunned. And I want more people to have that kind of waking up experience to just how fascinating this stuff is. You know, you probably remember, we, most people in your audience probably remember learning about like something, I will say Disney version again, like the first uh, Thanksgiving you know, and Squanto the Indian who came to help the pilgrims and how magical. A and they story. buried the fish and the corn grew better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you know the real story of this man, Squanto? I don't know about Squanto. I know about the uh, the sort of experiment in, in communism that led to starvation that was later abandoned. But uh, Indeed. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of uh, Austrian scholarship what, on that. What's the Squanto story? Well, I mean, this is just such a prime example of the robbery, you know, that that takes place in these public schools that I really want to alert people to, whether it was me as the teacher or me now as this podcaster who explores these topics sometimes. Squanto, it's, it's never even explained why there's this Native American named Squanto waiting for the pilgrims who speaks English and is eager to help them. And, and they certainly explain it as a, you know, divine providence, uh, I'm thinking. But that's not the case. Squanto was somebody who grew up in the Massachusetts Bay uh, at a very young age, in maybe the 1590s or the turn of the, the 17th century. He was kidnapped by British fishermen, and they took him to England, and they trained him as an interpreter. And eventually he industriously earned his freedom and you know, went back to um, North America. And then I think he was actually kidnapped again and brought back to Europe for some reason. And by the time he finally worked his way home to the Massachusetts Bay, everybody that he had ever known in his life was dead. They had been uh, killed by disease brought by European fishermen. So this gets us to him being in that area, speaking English and available to the pilgrims, really, with not too much else to do, because he doesn't know anybody, at the time the Mayflower arrives. Now, that's a fascinating story. I mean, I just kind of just hit some bullet points of it. But the story of this man is so interesting and so heartbreaking, and it's completely omitted from the pilgrim's narrative because it makes the—it's not a romantic uh founding story for America. Yeah, you know, the British came here and they'd been trying since like the 1580s or the 1590s to set up a colony, but they just spread disease and then people died and they would kidnap people and dig graves. So it starts with the pilgrims, you know, these people who are seeking religious freedom, who would just so happen to land on the future site of the world's freest country. But the most interesting aspects of those story, which I think is the, the background of this man Squanto, completely omitted for the sake of public relations. And there are endless examples uh, of stuff like that. So, in, so in this is when, this is probably why the more you study history, the more open you are to conspiracy theories, because you start to realize, you start to say, well, wait, wait a minute. You know, and, and again, I don't think you need a conspiracy theory lens. I think rational choice theory uh, explains all this perfectly. Um, but there's so much that is known or knowable 
that just sort of gets reframed um, because it's threatening or inconvenient to whomever is doing the framing. Uh, it's it's a little bit it's a little bit troublesome. So so to sort of to connect this to the education topic, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm asking I'm going to ask you a, a monumental feat uh, considering the work that uh, people like John Taylor Gatto have done. I know you've done a lot of work on this as well, but give us a history of schooling in just like a couple minutes. Yeah. That is a that is a great question. Well, I think it, just for the sake of time, the best place to start would be the beginning of the 1800s in Central Europe, uh, primarily in the Kingdom of Prussia. And the Prussian aristocracy was interesting interested in expanding their small kingdom. And as they expanded to the West, they bumped into the French and Napoleon. And um, they suffered a few really, really embarrassing military defeats. Uh, one of the most noteworthy was in a place called Jena. And it was so devastating for the for the kingdom of Prussia that their intellectuals, uh, there was one philosopher, he was um, uh, kind of not exactly a student of Immanuel Kant, but uh, like he wanted to be an imitator of Immanuel Kant. And his name was Johann Fichte. And he wrote something, I think it was called The Address to the German Nation. And basically what his prescription was, uh, a kind of schooling system that would put into the people a, a sense of nationalism, a collective identity that they could fight for. The Prussian military was very, very undisciplined because they did common sense things. Like if a stranger who you've never had a problem with starts shooting at you, and it's you know it's a bunch of them, and you're in a field. Well, just get the hell out of that field as quickly as possible. You know, don't shoot back and <laughs> just run. <laughs> Drop whatever you're holding and run. So they had a, a kind of a a fire discipline problem that the aristocrats were hoping the schooling system would solve, and and that's actually how uh, government schooling, compulsion schooling, uh, began. In, in the Western world. I mean, there were, there were other versions of it, and you could trace it back all the way to ancient Greece to not the Athenians. Who were the, the really... Spartans. Uh, Spartans, yeah, exactly. So um, in the 1850s, as America was starting to accept immigrants and as slavery was coming to an end, there were a lot of academics and intellectuals who were looking for you know, a similar kind of homogenizing um, institution in this country. And Horace Mann and a handful of others, Horace Mann is considered to be, at least this is what I learned in graduate school, the father of American public education. He went to Central Europe. He went to Prussia. And he said, well, this system is great. We should bring this to America. But sure, yeah, it's a little authoritarian. We can use it, though, to just, you know, ensure the continuance of our Republican institutions or something like that. And the system starts uh, its importation to the United States, first to Massachusetts, and then other states uh, quickly adopt it. Uh, Mann, interestingly enough, never even saw the Prussian schools in session. He was there during um, uh, the harvest vacation, basically. Mm -hmm. So he never even saw the schools operate. He just basically toured the grounds and talked to administrators. And... um, that system caught on making public schooling uh, an institution, a permanent fixture in American life. 
And by the time we get to the 20th century, there there's, you know, we're two generations into its existence, a group of progressive reformers come along, people like John Dewey, uh, people who we would today call socialists, who want the schools to basically produce their vision of society in the adult world. And, you know, this is also pretty dark. You have people getting involved in the schools and meddling in the schools who are interested in things like uh, eugenics and, and sterilization. Most of the eugenics programs that were implemented back, you know, it was like education came here from Central Europe, uh, existed for a couple of generations. Uh, the American intellectuals embrace it. They develop eugenics, send it back kind of like a Yankee swap. Uh, to, to Central Europe, uh, where it's unfortunately and tragically implemented in the 1930s and the 1940s. But those ideas originated here with American progressives, and those were the people meddling with the schools in, in the first few decades of the 1900s. So I certainly left out a lot of details, but that's how it became a fixed compulsory institution in the United States between 1850 and, say, 1920. That was a, a very good job of doing that so quickly. You, you know, there's something really, I think it's really important to always keep in mind that intentions and outcomes aren't the same and motivations for uh, people doing certain things don't necessarily mean if someone has bad motivations, for example, what they do still may result in good. If they have good motivations, what they do still may result in bad. So it's, it's good to see those things separately. So it's not enough to say, well, those who sort of started the system of compulsory um, education had, frankly, pretty unflattering and, and frightening motives. Um, that alone does not prove that the schooling system is detrimental or not conducive to learning. But I think it's really important to start there to bust this myth that, well, look, maybe it doesn't work perfectly, but the reason school came about was because people needed to learn. They weren't learning. And it's 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 really not that's really not the genesis of it. I mean, it was actually a pretty, pretty literate um, country, all things considered, even at the time when, when these schools were implemented. But it has always been motivated by a homogenizing uh, impulse that we want to sort of shape people into good, obedient citizens. I remember reading even even our wonderful independence-loving founding fathers. I remember reading some um, letters or essays by Benjamin Franklin and he was really, really pushing this uh, public school in Philadelphia. And his main reason for pushing it was because he was just so disgusted by those filthy German immigrants and they keep speaking German. And I just want them to speak English. So let's create a free school that's too good of a deal for any of the parents to turn down because it's going to, you know, for free, get their kids off the streets and educate them. And we'll secretly train the German out of them so that they'll stop speaking German and polluting my city with their culture that I that I dislike. I mean, it was really very like, I'm trying to remember what essay or letter it was, but it came across as very like, well, the motivation here is not this beneficent, like kids aren't learning enough. No, I didn't say anything about that. It wasn't like, oh, these, these German kids, they're, they don't have any opportunities. No, it was like, I want them to be more like me and <laughs> to behave more like my ideal American should behave. Uh, so let's get them in and, and train them up. And I think that's that's important to understand that the origins. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I, you know, going back to just the, the progressives, I mean, the Horace Mann, the, that crowd, it's a little bit harder to pin down what their real intentions were. But I think a lot of these progressives like John Dewey and a lot of these, you know, academics who came along in the early 20th century, they had the best of intentions. They thought they were saving the world. 
you know, even if it meant homogenization and collectivization and even making people uh, more predictable and in, in ultimately implementing something like uh, the psychology of behaviorism, it was necessary for the harmonious function of, of society. I really believe, especially when these people were, you know, somewhat sheltered from living in the real world uh, through academia, that they really, really believed that they were doing uh, the right thing. I mean, that's the problem with with central planning and collectivism is <laughs> there's a lot of things that aren't accounted for mm-hmm. when in your models people behave like machines and then in the real world they don't. Mm-hmm. You know, things often go awry. But I really believe that, especially during the first and second big waves of immigration, that a lot of the establishment was really terrified um, and, and would would agree with Benjamin Franklin's sentiment and, and would agree with a lot of people today who share that sentiment about this threat of uh, dilution of, of culture or a loss of a uh, cultural identity because of, you know, new people flooding into this country. So the concerns are valid. You know, I, I, I think that people's response or actions or or rhetoric about those concerns certainly can leave something for a lot of us, uh, leave something to be desired for a lot of us. But uh, they didn't see themselves as, you know, uh, evil uh, controllers of people. They they just look that way to us, people who are more uh, focused on individualism and and see the the errors of uh, and the, the tragedies really of collectivism but remember too those that was pre soviet union that was pre nazi germany that was pre mao pre great leap forward so it's important to have in my mind and this is a, a point of view that took a long time for me to develop just a a touch of sympathy <laughs> and understanding for that mindset 100 years ago mm. Because yeah. there are there are a lot of experiences uh, that that we can reflect on that they couldn't. You know, I, I always I feel like there's a, a bit of a, almost a doubting of the power of self interest in here. It, it kind of goes back to this Hobbesian idea that if left alone, people will all just sort of destroy each other. There's got to be some strong authority that makes sure they do the things that are good for them, because it's like their own self interest is not strong enough for them to figure out that, you know, it's not going to be good for them to have a society where everyone's plundering and stealing and everything is falling apart. And I think that's just a fundamentally flawed notion. I don't think you need perfect people. I just think you need to trust that people's self-interest, um, you know, given a, given a context that has freedom and opportunity, uh, is not going to drive them to destructive behaviors. They don't need an authority figure with a cattle prod at all times to make sure they sort of take care of themselves. And, and I think that's a, a fundamentally different view, um, that goes to parenting, learning. Uh, I mean, all of the, all the aspects of, of society, this, this notion that if we didn't have some big centralized group of people with a monopoly on the, the, the use of violence that somehow everyone would just start looting and, uh, would there be, you know, chaos in the streets <laughs> at all times? Those, yeah. Those institutions actually make people intellectually lazy, I think. And and you get you get a lesser population as as a result of those institutions. You know, I was talking to somebody who lives in Scandinavia, Sweden, um, not too long ago, and they were talking about the population and just in their lifetime a palpable decrease in the industriousness of the 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 population that lives in this handout system. 
where where as long as you you give seventy five percent of your money away and everything is taken care of for you, you don't have a problem to solve. You know, maybe outside of you know personal relationship uh, shoe untied type problems, but uh, that it is a complete nanny state. After a few generations of that, you you don't have a strong industrious population anymore. So we could look out at the United States today. And the people who would counter the self-interest argue, argument that maybe we would make, I think they'd have a good case because they'd say, all right, well, I look out at America today and you say everyone can just act in their own self-interest. Uh, I see that half of the people are obese. Um, you know, this percentage of people are living paycheck to paycheck. This, these people are, are in crippling debt. There's, you know, a heroin and opioid epidemic that's hey, increasingly hey, look, this growing out of that, control. Yeah, this person that I've kept behind bars for their whole life, uh, see, they don't know how to live free. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So so it would be hard to walk them back from that to say, no, I think that this, these phenomena that we see in culture today is a direct result of those imposed systems of top-down control because it's taking away that 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 rugged individualism that I think people in this country once had. They had to forge their own way. They had to solve their own problems. You know, I mean, I I grew up in a, a fairly well-to-do family. I feel like I had a lot of things uh, handed to me. And, you know, I think I had good parents, but I, I think I'm worse off for not having to basically cut my own path and find my own way sooner in life. So yeah. this is a good uh, a good segue, a good unintentional segue to one of mm -hmm. the questions on my scattershot list. How hard is it? Because because you're an educator. I mean, you love to teach people. You love learning things yourself and helping others have those aha moments, as you said. And you're clearly clearly very good at it. Has it been hard for you to also be? an entrepreneur. So in addition to just teaching and engaging ideas, you've had to build a brand, figure out a revenue, you know, system, have a business model. You, you've got to maintain kind of an operation. You are sort of a company, not just an employee. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I think more people who are really good at teaching and sharing ideas should start to look at themselves that way. But I got to imagine it's hard too. I mean, it would have been probably easier for you to just kind of take a job where getting paid and business models and revenue and all that stuff is taken care of by somebody else. And you just have to focus on teaching. How, how has that been transitioning into being an entrepreneur? Uh, well, for me, it's been incredibly difficult because I really had no idea how to do it, you know, and I, I didn't see the value in outsourcing a lot of the responsibilities that still to this day lay in my lap, yeah. you know, uh, automation, uh, is another one. And when we did shows um, uh, on productivity in January, one of my guests actually talked about, you know, how much time he can actually save and free up for creative, bigger picture type work every month just by automating and outsourcing. Mm. Uh, and, and it's hard because a lot of those things, they, they don't seem like options for me because I'm in the thick of it, you know, mm -hmm. like all of this stuff. And, and I've gotten much, much better in the last couple of years. And my stress level has gone way down trying to trying to make all of this stuff work. But, you know, the advice that I would I would give to people is, you know, have a nice chunk of change saved if, if you want, if it's possible. You know, the other advice I have is start really young, you know, like when you're still a teenager and you have yeah. the the freedom to fail because, you know, you only have to make sure that your bed is made. You know, you don't have a mortgage. You don't have, uh, you know, all of these other these other obligations. So if you can start doing this stuff before you're 18, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. But 
uh, planning ahead. You know, I, when I started doing this, I didn't think it would be a job. I, I, I think when I first formulated these ideas, I thought for a moment it was something that I could get rich with somehow. And I thought it would be like as as a movie and then like a big school sucks merchandising empire. <laughs> but um, I, but I didn't know anything. So that was how I thought, you know, and as it started to produce a little bit of an income after it grew a, a substantial following and then it kind of grew to a size and a scope of responsibilities that didn't really allow me to like you know, drive around tutoring anymore as much as I would have liked. Um, yeah, I was really kind of blindsided by the opportunity that was presented to me. And I would, I would really suggest that other people do things uh, very differently than how I've done them. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I was incredibly naive. I think that I, that's a good title for my autobiography. <laughs> I was incredibly naive. Um, I, I thought that it was as simple as, you know, having a fair amount of talent for producing audio or video getting that product up on the internet and the rest will take care of itself. Uh, and that might've even been more true six or seven years ago when I started, but the market is so crowded now that you, you really have to know what you're doing and you really, really have to uh, have an edge. So the preparation would be, you know, financial, um, having money to invest in an entrepreneurial project, especially if it's something like what I'm doing, because it does cost quite a bit of money to do something like this professionally, but also to have a plan. You know, I just wanted an outlet. I just wanted like an audio video diary. Hmm. Uh, I didn't think about it as much more in the beginning. So, you know, having those things in place, because I see the difference between how things work for me and how things work for people who do similar types of uh, projects, but they did it with a plan right from the beginning mm -hmm. and they knew who they were talking to right from the beginning. You know, they had a clear avatar, uh, they had a clear marketing plan and, and a clear strategy. And, and I didn't have any of that. So I'm, I'm very lucky to, to be where I am today. And I think there's a tremendous untapped potential in, in what I'm doing, but I strongest recommendation would be doing it totally differently. <laughs> Okay. I don't want to, I, I want to be wrapping up in five or 10 minutes, let's say, mm -hmm. but I have like, sure. I have no half a dozen questions and I want to try to hit them quick. You, okay. You ready? Yeah, sure. All right. What do you see education looking like in 20 years? I guess there's two questions. What do you, what would you like to see and what do you expect? That's a great question. Let's start with what I expect. I expect it will look a lot like it does today. No, no. No, in 10 years, I think it will look a lot like it does today. In 20 years, I can see the entire higher education system collapsing uh, just because it, they can't justify it anymore. Hmm. And I think the government schooling K through 12 system is more institutionalized and has more political power behind it. Uh, or has sufficient political power behind it and, and is bigger in scope than higher education, that that would probably survive a little bit longer. But it's going to be hard for the, the public school supporters to justify its existence uh, much longer than that. What I would want education to look like is a question I've never answered, because to me, it's answering a question like, what should dinner look like you know <laughs> uh it should look like whatever the learner needs it to look like whatever keeps the learner um interested 
and uh, whatever is generated uh, intrinsically and whatever keeps each individual motivated. Now, I would amend that a little bit because I think there obviously are core skills that, that need to be developed. And I think early in life, it's up to parents to really set the right environment to ensure uh, their sons or daughters will have the ability to read and count and write and, and things like because those are like really, really foundational skills. And if they're not in place, it's it's hard to build um, anything without, you know, those core skills. So I think that those are important things. And maybe they even have to be, you know, outright instructed in a, in a homeschooling or a private schooling environment. But once a, a foundation of learning tools is is in place. I really believe that that kids should be set free to pursue uh, their own intrinsically motivated, um, you know, explorations. That that partially answers one of the other questions on here, which is, would you say you lean more towards one of these? Uh, and these are sort of big bucket approaches: unschooling, homeschooling, uh, something like a Sudbury Valley School, which is basically an unschool. Uh, school where people, a bunch of kids unschool together more or less, or something like a Montessori school. I think, I think I lean towards all of them, depending on, you know, who we're talking about and who we're not talking about. I think one student could, could get value out of all four of them, uh, you, you know, in a five-year period, you know, I mean, and I, I have these conversations with parents all the time. Uh, unschooled uh my child didn't really work out uh, we did more of a structured homeschooling approach then they decided they wanted to go to school i've also heard the exact story in reverse you know mm -hmm. we started in public school then we tried homeschooling and you know that was still too much uh you know structure or limitation and then we just moved more into an unschooling thing and that worked out great and they took off from there so yeah i don't uh, i can't really say that i lean in any in in any way, I mean, all of those approaches might be different depending on the learner and depending on what point in their learning adventure uh, he or she is in. So, I like I like that answer. Actually, somebody just asked me today. They they heard me talking about um, you know sort of unschooling my kids, and and he said, you know, I was, I was just talking about the need for intrinsic motivation and, and self directed learning, and he said, yeah, that's really cool. But don't you think something the classroom is valuable for some things? And I was like, well, you're you're missing my. That's a false dichotomy. Uh, what I'm interested in is who's the person choosing. And anytime you're forcing your kid to do something, I think it's less valuable when your kid is sort of following their own interest. And if their own interests lead them to a classroom as the best way to to gain something that they want, um, that's you know that's great. There's there's a lot of things that can be gained in that way, but it's it's more about the uh, the source of the motivation to me than it is the the medium of of learning. Mm. Um, okay, so what is one question or one topic you wish people would ask you about, but they rarely do? Oh wow, that is a good question. Um, video production. Ooh. I wish I could talk more about about that on my show. Or I get frustrated when somebody, I'll, I work really hard on the production of my show. You know, I, I, I don't think about it as compensation for not being like a genius. Like I, I know there's some people who can just turn on the microphone or turn on the camera and shoot for half an hour and then hit stop and put it right on YouTube. <laughs> that's I don't ba have that. That's basically I what I do. <laughs> yeah. But so, so, but I don't, and that it's masterful every time. 
right? Oh, well, that's so, not me, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that gift, you know. And I, and I've seen people who do have it, people who can really just riff and rant, but also have it be like, you know, powerful and and educational and entertaining. For me, that takes a lot of work. And you know, I, I put a lot of work into enhancing my productions, or at least I have with, uh, you know, a lot of productions in the past, audio or video. And somebody will say something to me like, where did you find that montage you used in that show? And I'm like, I made it. <laughs> I, I was going to ask five you, hours. I, I was going to ask you if you may, I figured you make those. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, occasionally I get a head start because I can pull like three clips out of one video. Um, but I've even thought about that, like in the production process, are people not going to know that I made this? <laughs> and a couple of times in the past, I even posted screenshots in the Facebook group of audio projects, just so people can see how many tracks there are, you know, in, in one projects like, Hey, Hey, th this is work. And I would, I really like to talk about my creative process in a non-pretentious and self-congratulatory way, but it's kind of tricky to talk about yeah, stuff like yeah. that and strike the right tone. But I, you know, I'm proud of the the work that I put into this and and what the finished product often is. So, um, yeah, I wish I wish people talked to me more about um, the creation process. And I, I spent a lot of time actually just talking about it in March, so that need was partially satisfied. But um, I, I would, it's not even so much like getting questions like, oh, how do you do this? But just having conversations with other people who are doing similar things and, and kind of shop talking would be really appealing. Oh man. You know, it's funny. It's, it's sometimes the, if you're doing something that you're really passionate about, that is a process, but it also has content. Everyone wants to talk about the content. So like I, I blog every day and I don't have like a huge audience by any means, but a lot of people will talk about the different things I blog about, but I always, I like talking about the process itself, you know, like yeah. this is, this is hard work to make myself do this. And like some days I, I write from inspiration. Some days I have to like go through and make it happen. I, I want to talk about that. So I think that's a really, um, I think that's really interesting. So speaking of your show, which by the way, you're right to be proud of it. It is very well produced. It's, it's, uh, such a pleasure to listen to because you can, I mean, there's just so much richness in the production. So kudos Thank to you. you. Thanks. How many hours do you put into a typical episode? Uh, Ooh, that's a tough question. Uh, I, the best answer I could give would be between six and 30, <laughs> depending on, depending on what it is. I mean, most of the, most of the shows that I've worked on in 2016, You're like a marketing freelancer, how long will it take you to do this? Somewhere between <laughs> one and 100 hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, most of the shows that, that I've done this year, I I'd say, five hours per show, but I've also cranked out a lot, a lot more of them. Um, actually, and that's just like the audio version that wouldn't include if there was a video version, that would be a separate, uh, workload. So when you have a video version, you don't just put up a like picture of you in the studio while you're talking, you add additional stuff to it. Well, I tried that. Um, I, I actually had to do video coverage. So I tried to just do like the still, uh, you know, logo or something like that and put the podcast up on YouTube and nobody watches those. So I actually did video coverage of me and the guest, you know, shooting myself with a camcorder and shooting the guest with like a screen capture program on Skype and then merging the two together in Sony Vegas and editing it just a little bit. It's really hard to 
edit video the way it is you the way you edit audio because you can see the jumps uh in uh, video and you can't see them in audio so sometimes you have to let the ums and ahs go because you know there'll be like continuity problems so um video editing is is more work than than audio editing and uh you know a, vi a video presentation for the same podcast could double or maybe even more than double uh, the length of time that it takes to get something like that ready for wow. release. So are you going to be disappointed when I air this and I don't go back and edit out your ums and ahs? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Because I can repost it eventually and I can go back and oh, yeah. edit you out can, both of ours. You can make it sound beautiful. Yeah. yeah. That, that's amazing. Then I'll start using that. This is my podcast. People will be like, wow, it's so well done. You never stutter. It's great. Indeed. Um, yeah. What is your favorite kind of episode? Um... Well, let's see. I, 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 the episodes that I've had the most fun with would be uh, we do these occasional collaboration shows with this other podcast called Liberty Conspiracy, hosted by this guy, Gardner Goldsmith. And instead of calling it like School Stocks and Liberty Conspiracy, we call it Podcast Masters Liberty Masterclass, which is a very, you know, sort of self-congratulatory <laughs> uh Sarah, like making a making a ceremony out of uh out of this joint production and uh quite pretentious we have uh, some some very ostentatious uh art that goes that goes with it um and we call the episodes masterpieces instead of uh podcasts <laughs> and so like the last one we did was in december and it was a four-hour exploration into uh, James Bond and the cultural impact of James Bond, but also the backstory of James Bond and the history of British intelligence and connections to all the way back to like Cecil Rhodes and the Rhodes Roundtables and Atlanticism and, you know, this this desire that British intellectuals once had to basically reunify um, you know, they or reassemble uh, the British Empire, including the United States, and you know how British intelligence and spying uh, fit into that, and how there was you know these subversions of uh, the American intellectuals by the British in World War One and World War Two, and we just went everywhere with this. The whole show was four hours. It wove these two different storylines, you know, one kind of a reaction to the James Bond film franchise and the other, this, um, historical, uh, backstory and the two storylines were kind of interwoven. So we would break away from one and go into the other one. And I just thought it was like a masterful. Oh, you sold me next yeah. time I'm traveling. I'm going to, I want to listen to it now. I'm, I'm like totally mesmerized. Is that, is, are those episodes in your, um, your feed for the school sucks podcast. Yep. That's episode okay. 399. It's called James Bond social injustice warrior. Oh, I love it. I'm going to go check it out. Okay. Final. I got two more questions. One sure. is what do you wish you could do with the school sucks project, but you currently lack the time, money, skill resources. Um, I would really like to do, uh, some really sleek, video productions for for YouTube or another means of, of distribution. I'm really hard on myself about the quality, and I think there's a lot of skills I need to learn to be able to do uh, better video production, which includes using better equipment to shoot footage and, and using better editing suites like the, the professional ones, which I haven't 
uh, taken the time to learn yet, like Adobe Premiere and uh, Adobe After Effects, stuff like that. Um, as far as the website is concerned, I'd really like to have a rich selection of alternative education courses, things that are really, really helpful um, to you know any of the three avatars to which we try to speak on um, you know self knowledge, uh, self education, or self improvement. You know that's that's the mission of School Sucks Project: achieving individual liberty through self knowledge, self education, and self improvement. So I uh, part of the reason why I've organized content the way I have so far this year is because I want someone to come to the front page of that site and just see, oh, in January, they talked about productivity. That would help me. Oh, in February, they spent the whole month talking about uh, you know, the principles of learning. That would help me. In March, they talked about creativity. That's, a, that's something that uh, I feel is underdeveloped in my life. And I want to just continue down that track through all of uh, 2016. But I'd eventually like to develop courses that I could sell you know, as, as basically, you know, all of this work that's gone into this free content is work that could have been going into creating a revenue stream. And it can probably go in both directions. But, um, you know, I feel like I feel like there's an opportunity to, uh, you know, develop some really valuable courses. So that's something that we've also been exploring uh, early in 2016. I love it, Brett. Final question. What mm -hmm. should our listeners do next to engage with you, learn more about uh, what you're up to? Do you have an email list or um, obviously going to schoolsucksproject.com? Is there anything in particular you'd point them to? Yeah, I would say go to schoolsucksproject.com and make an account uh, just so you can you know, be visible there. And they could, uh, in, a very, in the very near future, they'll be able to join uh, a newsletter and get extra updates from me. But I really want people to explore the podcast. So on the website, you know, there's a list of every series that we've ever done going all the way back to 2009. And I would encourage your listeners to just go and, and see what interests them and, and start listening. And uh, check us out on YouTube as well. Maybe you could just start with um, a video series I did called The Underground History of American Education, which was based on a book of the same title by John Taylor Gatto. And uh, it was a way to... There, John Taylor Gatto wrote this amazing book that goes through the entire history of the public schooling system in America. And I really wanted to bring it to life and make it accessible to a new audience who probably wasn't going to find it, you know, searching Amazon for educational history. So I cut like 15 or 16 videos that I think are paced a little bit more like movie trailers than, uh, you know, educational history books, somebody reading an educational history book. And uh, I think it's some of the best work that, that we've done at School Sucks Project. And John also approved uh, of, of the series. So uh, I would encourage people to check out our video work. You can find it at School Sucks Podcast is our username on YouTube. Brett, absolutely. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on and um, look forward to keeping up with everything that you continue to do. Yeah, likewise, Isaac. I'm really excited to see uh, where the future of Praxis uh, takes you. Me too. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, have a great day, Brett. We'll talk again. Yep. Thanks.